Well, this is our last Sunday in our sermon series that has been called numerous things, one of which is Jesus Say What? Which didn't fit our formal context here at Rock Creek. And so then we thought about, what you talking about, Jesus? But we also thought that some of the younger crowd wouldn't pick that one up. It's an 80s reference. Uh, and so we've settled on this whole other thing that I always forget. It's called, Did Jesus Really Say? We're really, we're just, we're talking about um, these things that Jesus has said that are difficult for us, either confusing or, or challenging. Um, and we're asking ourselves, what does it really mean um, that Jesus, the one that we call king of everything and the rescuer of all he has made, what does it mean that he said these hard things? How do we incorporate those into our lives? How do we better understand this one called Jesus so we can follow him more fully? So this is the last of, uh, of these sermons. Um, and here we go. There is a, uh, I'm thinking of a movie. It's a foreign film. I'm going to give you one line. I want to see if you can get it. Are you ready? And I'm going to get the accent wrong because it's a foreign film and I'm American. Uh, it's this. You ready? Buongiorno, principessa. Who knows it? Life is beautiful, right? Life is beautiful. Anybody seen that one? It's a good movie. Yeah, Sandy, I knew you'd get that one. One of only two movies to be nominated for both Best Foreign Film and Best Film by the Academy because we Americans are ethnocentric. It's a good film. Um, it is, uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, the premise is it's set in uh, late 1930s Italy. And, uh, and there's a man, Guido, who woos and marries a beautiful princess school teacher. And they have uh, a son. And about the time he's five years old, or actually as he's five years old, they're celebrating his birthday party. And into the birthday party storm um, Nazi soldiers and drag Guido and his son off to, concentra- to a concentration camp because he's a Jewish man, and uh, therefore his son is too, and his, uh, the wife pleads to come uh, and, is, and is brought along. But then uh, the, the men and the women are separated. She goes to a different part of the camp, um, and, uh, and the two boys, the men, Guido and his son, are put in, a, put in a, uh, this concentration camp. So pretty heavy setting. The story continues to unfold as a German soldier walks into their barrack right when they get there, and he says, in broken Italian, I need a translator. Guido stands up and says, I'll translate. And he knows no German at all. The German soldier begins to give strict orders in a very kind of firm fashion, and Guido, because he wants to keep his son alive, because he wants to protect and insulate his son from the horrors that are befalling them, translates this German's words like this. This is a game. Once you reach 1,000 points, you get a tank. If you survive, there will be hide-and-seek all the time. There is no crying. There is no complaining. You will lose points. So he goes about, the, he translates. The German is saying this, and then the Guido translates to his son. And so his son, the whole time they're in this concentration camp, believes that this is all a big game. And so his, so his dad has to tell him to hide when it's appropriate to hide. And he has to tell him to obey without complaining. And he has to tell him how to survive this whole experience. Now, it, um, the movie got very mixed reviews. 
If you go on one of these Metacritic type sites where they conglomerate all these reviews, it's always somewhere in the middle and not many of the reviews are like two and a half stars or something. The most of the reviews are very strongly positive or very strongly negative. I'll read a couple of them for you, just the, um, the quick sentence summary. Um, the Portland Oregonian says, it's one of the greatest films about the civilian experience of war ever made anywhere. It's pretty unqualified praise for this movie. Ebert, Roger Ebert, right? So that's Eric's dude, although he's deceased now, says this about it. Its unique message about laughing in the face of evil clearly reveals that life is beautiful. So you've got these very positive reviews about how they, they uh, engage in such a very difficult setting. But there are also many negative ones. The Christian Science Monitor said, It has good intentions, but its exaggerated celebration of quick-witted improvisation ultimately trivializes the human and historical horrors evoked by the story. You see, if they made a movie, if somebody made a movie about navigating, say, the trials of high school in the same way, there wouldn't be such a split idea. There wouldn't be so much division. Because high school, as difficult as it is and as challenging it is, pales in comparison to the gravity of the Holocaust. It is such a a vitally important thing that is being discussed here that it's going to bring division when you talk about it and when you, when you say, some people would say it should be dealt with this way. Some people say it should be dealt with this other way. It's going to bring about division. And that's what, um, that's what Jesus is bringing to us today. If you want to understand what he says in this passage, you have to understand first that Israel, Israel was a, it's a holiday weekend, you know. Get your two-cycle out. Let's go. Uh, two-stroke, that's the right word. Uh, it's, uh, uh, so Jesus is speaking into a refugee experience. He's speaking to Israel who believes themselves to be, um, to be in a concentration camp of sorts, to be not home. Hundreds of years before this, Israel had been judged by her God for their rebellion against him. Um, Ezekiel uh, reports a vision of God's presence leaving God's temple. Not long after that, uh, a foreign empire comes and destroys Jerusalem, knocks down the temple, and drags off God's people into forced exile around, um, around the Mediterranean, different places. 75 years later or so, they get to come back. Um, but Israel has come back. They rebuilt Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple even. But they still have a very strong sense that they are not home yet. That the temple, the temple is not, God's presence has not returned to the temple. More tangibly, pagan nations are still ruling over God's people and God's land. So Israel has this same sense that we, we are not home. This is not where we belong. This is not the end of the story. And it's into that very grave situation that Jesus is speaking. And he says, not only are they not home, but he says that they're going about it all wrong. He confronts 
everyone's idea of how to live as a refugee in this experience, how to, how to wait well, how to bring about God's appearance and God's justice and his salvation for his people. Now it's important if we want to understand what Jesus says to Israel that we also um, acknowledge that you and I, you and I live in a refugee experience. We live in a setting where we are not home. We're not home. For some of you, this, this, um, this shows itself in a gnawing feeling of being a misfit, even among your own family. You feel like you just don't fit in. Maybe it's that you're lonely, even when you're around people who love you. It could be that you've arrived in life. You have the job that you thought you were going to have. You have the house. You have the situation. You've got the family that you wanted to have. And you are still left with this question. Is this all there is? So, so this is it? It could be that your body is starting to fail you. Maybe you have a, uh, some kind of illness, a sickness, or... or um, some way that your body isn't functioning and you just are, uh, you feel like you're working against your own body all the time. For some of you, it's that you have tried and tried. You've tried everything. You read your Bible, you pray, you get accountability, you, you say you're sorry, but you just cannot change. You just don't see any change in yourself. We suffer frustration at every turn. And most of us want to blink it out. We just don't want to deal with it. My family um, is all in Nashville. And it is a large family. And I have five brothers. There's five of us siblings. There's four cousins, four of my first cousins, or five first cousins who all live in town together. Tons of aunts and uncles. And they had a big throwdown last Saturday. Big style. Like bands and all kinds of fun things to drink and uh, that were not abused, I am sure of it. Uh, and people brought tents and just and hung out all night. And all the little, We have like 84 grandkids that are like nine years old and they were all running around, uh, you know, getting fish hooks stuck in them at the pond and like riding horses and all this kind of stuff. They had a blowout. And I, we didn't get to go. And I, I just wanted to ignore it. There were all these pictures posted on uh, Twitter book and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and I didn't want to look at one of them. Until we were sitting down um, one night after we put the kids to bed. Rachel and I were sitting down and, and, and Rachel starts scrolling through some of these pictures. And she says, you've got to look at these. I said, I'm not going, I don't know, I don't really want to, it just hurts, I don't don't think so. And she said, if you don't, if, if, she said, if I don't look at these, I'm just going to hate that we're here. I said, what are you talking about? What Rachel had to do was acknowledge, we are not home. Not Lookout Mountain, not Farallon, not Rock Creek, just that this world hurts, and if you blink it out, if you try and ignore it, then you're also ignoring why we're here, the purpose that we're here. 
I did not want to uh, to confront any of that. I just wanted to leave it alone and not not jump into my refugee existence. Before we move on to what Jesus says to refugees, I want us to take a moment to be quiet and ask the Holy Spirit to point out where He is, is needling us a little bit. Where He is showing us you, um, you don't actually belong here. Where He is showing you that the, 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 the cure for what ails you will not ultimately be found around you. It, it doesn't exist here. Um, your rescue is not up to you. It's not in the right job. It's not in the right relationships. It's not in the right acquiring of things. Let him speak to you for a moment. I want us to give just a moment of silence and say, Spirit, how do you want me to, to acknowledge that my existence is a refugee existence here, that I'm not home yet? When we start to acknowledge that we don't fit here, we're starting to see this, this very basic truth about, um, about Jesus and his actions and his message. It's this, that the kingdom is for outsiders. The kingdom that Jesus has called his people to proclaim in word and in deed is a, is, is a movement for people who are malcontent, for people who are outside for people who, um, who don't fit. Neil and Debbie Williams are uh, um, they're a family of missionaries that our church supports, and they minister in a Muslim context. And Jameson Griffin and I got to have lunch with them a couple weeks ago uh, before they headed out. And uh, we were talking about the, the folks um, that they encounter, and they interact with these Muslim folks. And they said, you know, the only people who actually care about what we have to say or who we are or why we're, the, we're there is the Muslims who are, be, who are discontent with Islam. Those are the ones who will listen. Those are the ones who care what we're saying. If you're in the system, if, you, if it's working for you, then you've got no reason to look for us. So we pray for and we seek out people who seem to be discontent. That's exactly, that's exactly this movement of Jesus. I mean, his disciples were, were fishermen, not the well-educated, and a tax collector who everybody hated. The, he hung out with, with um, drunkards and prostitutes so much that people said that probably he was a drunkard, probably he was a party guy. His movement was for outsiders. It's not for those of us who fit in and dress really well and who everybody admires. That doesn't mean you have to dress ugly. It just means we have to acknowledge that none of us fit. So Jesus is sending out his, his disciples to find these malcontents, to find people who don't fit. And he says to them, Go, and as you're going, proclaim in word and deed that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That means that God is coming to rule right now through our activity. That's what you're to proclaim. 
that the God of Israel is declaring himself king and acting like it right now. Now, if you're going to proclaim that, it assumes that the people who are going the other way are wrong because you're saying to them, repent. This is the kingdom. Here it is. And so it's going to be a contentious thing, just like this movie was very contentious because how do you deal with something so grave and so important? Do you creatively make light of it or do you, do you weep and you mourn? And, and, and Jesus was coming at, um, coming at this very question and, uh, and, and countering God's people in so many ways. He said a lot of disturbing things about his kingdom and the way it moves forward that made a lot of people very mad. But Jesus... Why would, why would what he is saying bring such deep conflict, even to be among a family? He, he says that he's going to bring not peace, but the sword. And this is not the sword of violence. It's the sword of division. It's a sword that divides. You can see it as he explains in the passage that it's going to divide uh, a man from his father, a daughter from her mother, mother-in-law from her daughter-in-law. Not a hard one to believe. It goes on from there and says that your, um, your uh, enemies will be those of your very own household. Why is this going to divide so, so sharply? So part of what we have to understand is family now versus family then. My brother, um, my older brother, is an English teacher in China. And... Uh, and uh, he has, he's been there for a few years now, and he's got himself a Chinese girlfriend. And he's pleased with her, and she's a wonderful young lady. And, um, but he was surprised by a conversation he had with his, um, with his girlfriend's mother. What did I say? Okay. She's a great gal. All right. I'm just done. I'm so he, was, he, he likes her a lot, but he was surprised by a conversation he had with his, his girlfriend's mother, who told him, if you would like to marry my daughter, you must give to me $50,000. He said, what? I don't, he said, I don't know what planet you come from, but that's not going to happen. She is a, what she's asking for is very common in that, uh, in that culture, she is asking for stability of the family. She's asking for divorce insurance. If you leave this, if you leave my daughter, she's got to have something to fall back on. And so, so you need to deposit is not money that she would go use on mani patties or whatever. Um, it's, to, it's, it's for her daughter. It's for the stability of the family. My brother also says that the young men, so young men, uh, as they kind of come out of school or get to their 20s, are under constant pressure to start a family. Um, the, the, the adults, are, the, their parents are saying, when are you going to get married? When are you going to get married? So if they want to get married, they've got to have this major sum of money to, to deposit to the, to the woman's side. But then also from his side, his parents are saying, we need some money. We need some money. We need some money. And, you, and he's also expected to, to be depositing into an account for his parents for their retirement. So all of his 20s, a young man is working as hard as he can to give money to the two sets of parents. 
That's a little different than, than the way we think of family. Right? I mean, kids are an insurance policy. They're for stability. They're there to, to make sure that nothing bad happens to you. you there's an interdependence there. That's a, very, that's, a, that's a traditional culture which is very different than ours today. You know, in Jesus' time, he's speaking into a, a very similar culture, traditional culture, where family was the very rootedness of your identity. If you wanted to go into business with somebody or purchase some land from somebody in the first century, if you wanted to even get a loan from somebody, what would they do? They can't get your social security number and write a credit check like they would today. Right? They can't look at your credit history. They go to your family. They go, look at, they go and ask who, who your family is. If you're divided from your family... No credit. No one's going to go into business with you. If you're a young lady, there's no police force in the first century. There's nobody roaming around to make sure that everybody's safe and everybody abides by the rules. You know what the police force is? The family. I'm not going to mess with her because if I mess with her, those guys are going to come get me. Your family was your protection. If you're divided from your family... You've got nobody looking out for you, nobody protecting you. And maybe most severely in this context, the way that you knew as, a, as an Israelite that you were part of God's promise, his firm commitment to rescue his people and come and reign on the earth, the way that you knew that you were in good on the good side of that promise, not the judgment side, was not because you made a personal decision of faith one day. It's because of your family. That I am the daughter of so-and-so, who's the son of so-and-so, so-and-so, all the way back to Abraham, to whom the promise was made. That's your assurance. And if you are divided from that family, then your assurance as, as, as one of God's children is in jeopardy. Jesus is not asking any small thing here of his people. He says to me, choose me over your family. Choose me. Now, a different sermon for a different day would be the claim that Jesus is making there. That he says you should choose me instead of the most very basic, fundamental aspect of your life. His lordship claim. This division, this kind of extreme behavior only makes sense in a refugee camp. It only makes sense if the stakes are so high. And Jesus would not say such things. He wouldn't, he wouldn't tell his people to give up security and to give up their position among his people unless he had a plan to, to fix that. And his plan is the new family. He is making a new family. Matthew 12, Jesus says this, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, said, These are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is building a new family. He's calling you not to, not to a nomad existence, but to a new family, his family. One commentator said that Jesus is asking no small thing. He's telling his people to lead a socially deviant lifestyle away from home. Now, who do you know in our world that you would characterize that way? A socially deviant lifestyle away from home. 
Well, anybody who would be characterized with that lifestyle would certainly be an outcast. They would certainly be a misfit. Somebody who doesn't find a fit, who doesn't find a place in the typical society. And those are the people that Jesus is after. The kingdom of Jesus is an outsider movement. It's for those who know they're living in a refugee camp. Jesus moves on to clarify what he's saying. He says, there's going to bring division among your family. He says, whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. He's calling us to be so committed to him and his way that we'd be willing to give over our own family. Why would Jesus choose family right here instead of, say, career? Why wouldn't he say, you know, the division is going to come in your place of work or in your style of dress or in what you eat? He, he says family because it is the most basic building block of who you are. I have a friend, his name is Will Kozel, and he infuriates me. He's one of these guys that just needles and he, uh, and he just plays devil's advocate constantly. So Will Kozel was an intern um, at this church that I was serving. And we did, I did senior high ministry and he was the intern for junior high ministry. And we were doing this training time with all of our uh, servant leaders in the uh, youth ministry. And we, one thing was, so we said, okay, everybody write down your two most influential books, your two most influential movies, and your two most influential people. And take a minute, write it all down. And then you were supposed to, you know, as you level, keep going. Okay, now cross off three of those so that you're just left with like your top three most influential books, people, or movies. Okay, now cross off another one. Now you get to the last one. The whole point is you get to the last one. It's the person. The relationships are the most influential thing for other people. But Will did not play along. From the very beginning... We're writing, I say, okay, everybody write those things down. And, and Will goes, yeah, but it's just, just, it's just my parents. I was like, okay, Will, how about just do the movie thing too? Just to play. He goes, yeah, but I could do that, but it's just going to be my parents. I said, okay, Will, maybe choose somebody that you chose to let influence you. How about that? Well, either way, like, there's no, it's, my parents are the most influential. I was like, oh my gosh. I think I threw the podium at him. Will. But his whole point was, you can't get away from it, even if you want to. And you won't actually know this until you live really closely with somebody from another family. Have you experienced this with like a roommate? And you do the dishes, and they put the dirty ones on this side, wash here, and stack the dry ones here. Or, you know, you put the dirty ones here, wash them up, and then you dry them and put them away. And you do something different, and you have no idea why you do it, but it drives you crazy that they do it a different way. Absolutely insane. It's because your family is the very basic building block of who you are. You can't get away from it. You can't escape that. Jesus is saying, I am so basic. I am so, um, so important that I will rework the very fabric of your being. That's how in tight I'm going to be with you. That's who I am. Jesus doesn't want to. Um, Jesus doesn't want to divide for the sake of violence. 
You see, all of us, all of us are like Will Kozel. We're controlled by our families. There's some of us who live under such pressure and weight to live up to what our mom or our dad or our siblings think of us. And we are bound up. We have a hard time even making a decision if unless we know what they want from us, unless we can think of it and imagine would this make them happy or not. Some of us are so enslaved to our parents. Other of us, uh, others of us have tried to liberate ourselves and say, I will never be like them. I will never be like my parents. I hate them. In fact, I'm going to do the very opposite of what they would want me to do. Guess what? You're still being controlled by them. Your life is just a reaction to them in a different way. But Jesus is offering us all freedom from that. Freedom to love them and not need them in that way. Freedom to be remade. To find yourself an outsider and be invited into a new family. You see, when we live that way for our families, when we, when we hold on so tightly and we can't let anyone down, we can't choose Jesus over um, and His agenda over our children or over our parents or over our brothers and sisters, that creates a division. It creates a division between us and our God. Because our God says, I am the one who created you, and I alone can uh, determine who you are and what you will do. And when we say something else determines what we do, we create a division there. That sword divides between us and our Father. And that's a sword that would divide us for all eternity. But for Jesus on the cross, on the cross, Jesus took the sword. The sword of division fell and it separated the most intimate and eternal family the Trinity. On the cross, uh, everywhere else, Jesus talks to Yahweh, the God of Israel, by saying, My Father, our Father who art in heaven. He talks to Him. He says, You're my Father. But on the cross is the only place where Jesus prays to Him this way, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? See, on the cross, Jesus took that division so that you and I would never have to. So that when we, um, when we receive His kingdom, when we receive Him, then we will never have to cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We will only ever cry, My Heavenly Father. Even if this sword will divide you from your children, will divide you from your parents, will divide you from your brothers and sisters. It is not a price that you pay alone. Jesus has put you into a family and He has paid the price first. Amen.